Well, today at the end of our time together, we are going to be celebrating communion. And so if you did not pick up a set of communion elements as you came in today, if you would like a set, just hold your hand up high and a member of our host team will be happy to bring those to you. Now, a gentleman by the name of Carl von Clausenwitz, right, clearly not one of my relatives, was the first person to ever um, coin a term uh, that's been used to describe part of the experience or part of the reality uh, of war. And the term that he came up with is this one right here. It's the fog of war. And the fog of war is a reality in every war because in every war there is chaos. In every war um, there, is, um, there, there, are, uh, there is complexity. Right? In every battle, um, precision and certainty is always at odds with speed and agility. And every decision, um, every action is in fact a series of trade-offs between those. Officers and soldiers um, become separated. Orders um, get confused. Uh, communication, it, it dissipates. In battle, bombs are exploding, bullets are hitting all around you. Oftentimes, you, you have no idea where the attack is actually coming from or how many enemies there are. All you know um, is that you're under attack. Your brain is not able um, to process all that is happening around you. Your adrenaline, it begins to spike, and so your brain, it actually narrows um, your field of view, and so you get tunnel vision. In the fog of war, soldiers will often fire in the direction that they simply think the enemy is in, oftentimes killing or wounding some of their own. And see, we live in something like that fog here. Because oftentimes what we experience in life in this world, it feels like a battle. Now, in battle, the solution to the fog of war um, is, is actually quite simple. It's to know what your objective is, who the enemy is, and how are you going to accomplish that objective. Now, throughout this series, these past weeks that we've been together, we have been looking at some of the most uh, famous, some of the most familiar stories of, of battles that are found in the Scripture. And each week we've seen how it is that in the midst of these battles that God actually fights for us, that he fights through us. And last week, if you were with us, um, we were reminded by the Apostle Paul that regardless of what it is that we once were, in the midst of the battle, Jesus has actually made us into something new. And see, the Apostle Paul himself, he had a, a lot of personal experience um, with the whole idea of the fog of war because he started out life unclear as to who his enemy really was and consequently ended up inflicting great harm on many of his own people. But then he was recruited by Jesus. He becomes a follower of Jesus. And then not only does he become a follower, but now he makes it his mission to go out and to repair all the damage that he's done and to take the gospel of Jesus out of Judea, out of Palestine, in fact, all over the world. And so when Paul writes what it is that we're about to read together today, um, these words are so emotional. Because the Apostle Paul realizes that he personally has been caught up in the fog of war. And so he writes with incredible clarity to make sure that the same thing does not happen to us. That we understand the who and the what uh, and the how of the battle that we fight in. If you're with us today for the first time, this is a great time for you to be with us. By the time we leave together today, you are going to know more about faith um, and what it is that we're here to do than you could have possibly expected. Um, I'm so glad that you're here. We're going to read beginning in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 14. 
The Apostle Paul says this. He says, it is Christ's love that compels us, right? It's Christ's love that compels us. Not God's judgment, um, not fear of hell, not fear of consequences, um, not fear of anything, in fact. It's not the wrath of God. No, he says, it is Christ's love. The Apostle Paul says, listen, um, th- there's a lot that we could say about what it is that, that, that God is compelling us or why we're compelled to do something, but it is the love uh, of Christ. And see, there's a, a little Greek thing going on here in this text. Because the Apostle Paul knows that the way that he structures this statement, that we could hear this in two different ways. It's like, Paul, are you talking about, um, about Christ's love for me, or are you talking about my love for Christ? To which the Apostle Paul would say, well, well, it's actually both, right? It's both because it's Jesus' love for me and that results in, in my love for Jesus and that makes me appreciate and understand Jesus' love for me even more. That's what compels him. And see, this is what compels us and this is what keeps us focused on communicating the message of the gospel, Right? And, and this little word, again, this Greek word compels here, um, it's actually the Greek word syneko. And it's used all throughout the New Testament and it carries a number of different meanings uh, along with it. And, and it, it kind of goes like this. It's telling, the Apostle Paul is telling us that, that Christ's love, that Jesus' love, it guards us. Right? That it guides us. It actually it keeps us on the right path. That Jesus' love um, unifies us. That this is the thing we rally behind. In fact, this is the thing we rally behind. Every follower of Jesus all over the world, the thing that we rally around, it's not the way that we do baptism, it's not the way that we do communion, right? It's not where we worship or when we worship or what songs we sing when we worship. The thing that unifies all of us is what it is that Christ did for us on the cross, that his love was demonstrated to us. That's the thing that focuses us. And that's the thing that focuses our attention and it focuses our activity and our resources as a church. It's Christ's love, Paul says, that motivates us or drives us or compels us. And so when I read this this past week, thinking about this message today, I I thought, okay, this is it, right? No matter what battle we're facing in life, no matter what we feel is going on around us, no matter what the enemy tries to throw at it, this is the mission. This is why we're here. This is the reason God has put us here. Because when Jesus came into the world, the truth is, it was good news. And anybody who resists Jesus, right, my opinion... They just don't understand that the message of Jesus is, in fact, good news. And the truth is, I've never met someone who wanted to resist good news. Whatever it is that a person is resisting about Jesus, I would argue, is a mischaracterization about or a misunderstanding about the message of Jesus. Because, see, the guy who wrote this, he used to think that the message of Jesus was bad news until he got clear on the who. And once he got clear on the who, then the Apostle Paul said, okay, the message of Jesus is like the greatest news. It is like the best news that's ever been given. That God actually loves you. That that before God ever asks anything from you, that he has something for you. Before he ever requires anything from you, that, that he wants you to know that he has a gift for you. That is good news. And so the Apostle Paul would tell us, listen, um, there's a lot that he could say to us about God, right? But it is Christ's love, the Apostle Paul says, that compels us, 
right? That is the tip of, of the spear. In fact, if you don't get anything else out of today's message, if you don't like the way that I talk, if you don't like the, the way that we sing, um, my hope is that um, you, you walk out of here and you say, okay, I didn't like that church, but they absolutely positively believe that God loves me and that that love was demonstrated for me on the cross by Jesus. That is what compels us. That his love was demonstrated. The Apostle Paul continues and he says this. It compels us because we are convinced. And again, think about who it is that wrote this, right? This is the Apostle Paul. It took some convincing for the Apostle Paul, didn't it? Because see, Jesus was not something that he was apathetic about. Jesus was not something that he was neutral about. No, the Apostle Paul was anti, right? He was against Jesus. And he says that we are convinced. We're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died, right? Talking about Jesus, that one died for all, so therefore all died, which is just a fancy way of saying that all of us, right, all of us, we were all as good as dead because on our own we were actually separated from God, from our Heavenly Father. And so because of that, Jesus died for us so that we would not die and then be eternally separated from him. And when the Apostle Paul says all, right, he means all. That's what was so compelling about Jesus' love. Jesus didn't just die for the people who were like him, and Jesus didn't just die for the people who liked him. Because when Jesus died for the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul was nothing like Jesus. In fact, the Apostle Paul hated Jesus. And so this required some convincing. And the Apostle Paul says, you know what? What he did for me, that was pretty convincing. He died for all. That those who live, right, those of us who follow Jesus, who have placed our faith in Jesus, those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. See, the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, anyone who understands that the message of Jesus is good news, that the message of Jesus, that God has done something for us, he's not just trying to get something from us. He says the people who realize that, the people who understand this, he says, they say to themselves, I can't just live for myself anymore. I can't just say thank you to my Heavenly Father for everything you've given me and then go about my merry way. No. When a person realizes, he says, when a person understands, when it dawns on them what it is that God has actually done for them, the Apostle Paul says, listen, that person can no longer live for themselves. Instead, their response to God, right, the response of a Jesus follower, don't miss this, this might be new for some of you. The response to a person, the response to God for a person who follows Jesus is to say to our Heavenly Father, okay, because of what you've done for me, how could I dare, why would I dare live for myself, right? I, I can't possibly do that. I would never do that. I am so grateful for, for that you made the first move. I am so grateful that you fixed something that was broken. I can't just keep that to myself. There's no way. There's no way that I could live for myself. And so I'm going to offer myself 
my life to you. Not because I'm afraid of what you'll do if I don't. Not, not because I'm afraid that you won't bless me. Not, not because I'm afraid of anything. No, I offer my life to you, Heavenly Father, because of what you've done for me. Your love compels me. You're not trying to pry open my greedy little hands. No. It's like, what else could I do in light of all that you've done for me? He goes on. All of this, right, all of what he's just explained to us, right, all of this, he says, is from God. And then the Apostle Paul introduces a powerful, powerful word that all of us are familiar with in a slightly different context. He goes and he says this. He says, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry, we'll come back to that in a minute, of reconciliation. Now, again, you know what it means to reconcile two things, right? To reconcile two things is to take two things um, that are not compatible and make them compatible, to reconcile is to take two things that, that are not in agreement and bring them into agreement. And see, this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. That on your own, right, and on my own, I was not reconciled to God. That we were, in fact, irreconcilable. That we had irreconcilable differences, I was a sinner and God was not. I was unholy and God was holy. I was water, God was fire. That we were irreconcilable. That we had irreconcilable differences. And see, the amazing thing, the Apostle Paul would say, this is the amazing thing about God. This is the amazing thing about the gospel. Is that God actually wanted to reconcile with you. But see, he knew that you could not reconcile with him. One, because you didn't know how. And number two, because you couldn't possibly, I couldn't possibly be good enough uh, on our own. Right? In fact, um, if you're somewhat new to church, if you're somewhat new to, to following Jesus or what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, this is kind of the gospel in, in a nutshell. Listen, um, it, it, because see, if, if you or I, if I was perfect, right, from this point forward, right, then that would do nothing about my past, would it? If I was perfect from this point forward, then I would be, um, I would be meeting God's standard from this point forward. But that would do nothing about all of the imperfections in my past. So what in the world am I supposed to do? What in the world are you supposed to do about that. We were irreconcilable. And see, the Apostle Paul says, the good news is that God reconciled us to himself. That he actually made the first move. That he accommodated. He adjusted himself to us. He, um, to use a big theological word, he became incarnate. He accommodated to our issue so that we could actually be reconciled to him. And then the Apostle Paul, he says that God gave to us the ministry. Now, in the Greek, this word that we translate here as ministry is not a religious word. See, when you see the word ministry, you think me, right? You think pastor, you think priest, you think church, you think religion. 
But in the Greek word, it's not a religious word. It's just the, the, the Greek word diakonia. Diakonia, and all it means, it means the mission, the objective, the, the task, or the responsibility. Right? In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, okay, God has done something for you. God has done something for me. And now God says, I, I, want, um, I want you collectively, I want all of you to partner with me, to partner with him, to help other people in the world understand that I want something for them because I am for them. That God has done something for you personally. That he did what he needed to do to allow all of us to be reconciled to him. To which if we're paying attention, we would be asking the Apostle Paul, okay, wait, but Paul, wait a minute, how? How? Right, because you just said, you just said we were irreconcilable. You, you just said that we had irreconcilable differences. I mean, what, what changed? I mean, Paul, what changed? Because I, I, I know myself well enough to know I'm not that good. Right? I, I'm not, Paul, I'm, not, I'm nowhere even close to perfect. So what changed? That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. How? By not counting people's sins against them. See, the thing that made you and the thing that made me irreconcilable to God was our sin. And so God said, Listen, I, I, I want us to, to be like this. I want us to be close. I, I don't want us to be like this. I want you to be as close to, to God. I want you to be, feel as close to me as, as flesh and blood can be close to God. I want you to sense my power. I, I want you to, to sense my presence. I, I want you to, to feel my love for you. And so I'm going to do Everything that is necessary, God said, to make that possible. And that means I'm going to have to do something about these. He says, I'm going to have to remove the barrier, the barrier to you being fully reconciled with me. Now, how in the world could that possibly be anything but great news? I have a friend um, who says the reason I don't believe in Jesus um, is because I think um, that each person has to deal with their own sin. I don't think um, that, that anybody can actually do that for you. And so I said to this person, I said, well, listen, at least we're actually talking about the issue, right? Because um, that is the issue. And the Apostle Paul says, listen, are, are you going to do something about your own sin or are you going to believe the fact that God has actually done something about your sin for you? And the Apostle Paul would say, listen, if God can do something about my sin, because I didn't just resist Jesus. No, I actually killed people because they followed Jesus. I actually put people in jail simply because they followed Jesus. And God is not even counting my sin against me. See, you understand what this means? If God is no longer counting your sin against you, you know, this is huge for some of you. That means that you are actually free to not count your sin against you either. Do you understand what this means? It means that because God is no longer counting your sin against you, you're actually free 
to not count other people's sins against them either? Right? Unless, of course, you have a higher standard than God. You know what this means? It means that God no longer counts your sin against you. That when you receive forgiveness from your heavenly Father, right, that empowers you to forgive yourself, to forgive other people, and even as many of us have experienced in life, to actually experience reconciliation with other people as well. And then the Apostle Paul, he goes on, and he wants to make our mission, he wants to make our objective, our task, he wants to make it incredibly clear and he wants to make it very, very practical. And he says this in verse 19. He says, and he, that's God, right, God has committed to us the message of reconciliation, that just as you have been reconciled, just as I have been reconciled, um, that we are to go and we are to help other people understand that they can be reconciled to God as well. We are, therefore, you've heard this before, Christ's ambassadors. Right? You know what an ambassador is. As though God were making his appeal through us. Now, in the Greek, this phrase, making his appeal, is actually just one single word, and it's the same word that we would use to describe what are called the closing arguments in a court of law. Right? This is, the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, the message of reconciliation, that through Jesus God no longer counts your sin against you, that is your Heavenly Father closing a case. And he is urging, he is begging, he is pleading. And the Apostle Paul says, as followers of Jesus, right, this is our message. We want everyone to understand it and we want everyone to embrace it. That as followers of Jesus, we are the ones through which our Heavenly Father is making his appeal to the entire world. And then listen to what he says next in verse 20. We implore you, right? We implore you as followers of Jesus, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The Apostle Paul says, okay, at the tip of the spear, if people are going to reject Jesus, right, make sure that this is in fact the thing that they are rejecting. That they are not, that our message is not do something that you've never done before. That our message is not clean yourself up. That your message is not behave a certain way. That your message is not be a better person. No, that our message is be reconciled to God. Because the only thing the Apostle Paul would say that is keeping you from being reconciled to God, it's not God. It is unwillingness to accept the fact this is the amazing thing. This is the gospel. That through Jesus, your heavenly Father is no longer holding your sin against you. That through Jesus, the path has been cleared. That he has done something for us because he is for us. This is what the Apostle Paul in verse 21, he goes on and he says this, that God made Jesus, and I forgot to put this on the screen, so it's my fault, but I want you to hear these words. Verse 21, God made Jesus, 
who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Amen. So to make this mission clear, to summarize what's happening in the midst of the battle, to not get caught up in the fog of war, to focus on the who and the what and the how of the battle. Right? Here's kind of a summary statement for you today. The love of Christ compels us. Right? Those of us who lead in the church, those of us who volunteer in the church, those of us who give and serve and do all that we need to do to come together every week and make this whole thing happen. The love of, of Christ compels us. This is, this is what, why we do what we do. And what is it we do? We urge people to be reconciled to God. That's it. That's what we do. This is why we do what we do. And we're trying to make sure that this is the thing that is out front, in front of everything else that we do. And so as we wrap up this series together today, and as we get ready to start a brand new series um, together next week, I want to give you just a couple of simple phrases to help remind you and help you understand why we do what we do, what we're doing, and how you can actually be a part of it. Let's begin simply with the what, right? This is the what. Every time we come together as a church, we're about reconciling people to God. That's it. If anybody ever says to you, hey, what's your church all about? It's simple. We're a church that's all about reconciling people to God. We believe that we have been given the responsibility of reconciliation, and we don't just take that personally. We take that corporately. So everything we do is about reconciling people to God, to say to people that through Jesus, God has removed the barrier. Be reconciled to God. The way that you hear us say this is like this. You've heard me say this countless times. That we're bringing Jesus into every relationship. Be reconciled to God. That's what we do. We bring Jesus into every relationship. Be reconciled to God. Now the truth is, that's a pretty big goal, isn't it? But see, let me tell you exactly where this comes from. When you read the Gospels, it is crystal clear that Jesus is for people. In fact, it's crystal clear that Jesus goes out of his way to make sure that people who were nothing like him understood that they were liked by him. That Jesus is, in fact, for everyone being reconciled to God. In fact, as you read the Gospels, what you find out is the only people that Jesus is ever against are the people who try to get in the way of other people being reconciled to God. That people who are nothing like Jesus, they liked Jesus because Jesus liked people who were nothing like him, which means that if we are in fact the body of Christ, if we are in fact the hands and the feet of Jesus, then people who are nothing like Jesus should like us when they're with us. And see, that's why we say that everything we do is about bringing Jesus into every relationship. And this is what we're trying to accomplish. This is how, this is what we do, what we do, and why we do what we do. This is why we want everyone in a small group. Right? This is why we think that groups are great. It's why we want you to go to one of the 12 meetups that are happening throughout the course of this summer. Because we want to leverage the power of relationships to create groups 
right? Groups of people and groups of relationships so that at every point, someone is connected to someone else who follows Jesus. That at every point in life, somewhere along the way, everyone is connected to someone who follows Jesus. People can hear something about Jesus in a group and be like, oh, oh, I didn't actually understand that. You know what? I've grown up hearing that. I didn't know what that looked like. I've grown up seeing, you know, wondering about that, but I've never saw it done before. We want everyone connected to someone who follows Jesus. Because you know this, people can't see God, right? People can't see Jesus. People can't see the Holy Spirit. But people can see people who follow God, people who follow Jesus, and people who are filled with and who are led by the Holy Spirit, right? Groups help to make the invisible visible, Groups are how people see Jesus' church in action. Groups are what take the theoretical and make it practical. So we create groups. That's what we do for children, students, and adults. Why? Because reconciled people reconcile people. This is what the Apostle Paul said. Right? Those who live should no longer live for themselves. Those who live should no longer live for themselves. Reconciled people reconcile people. Once you get it, you got to hand it off to somebody else. So the reason we do all this is because we believe that we've been given the task. We've been given the mission of the objective right, of reconciliation. We come together as groups of people to reconcile other people to God because reconciled people reconcile people. And you know how we do it? Three very simple things. Leading, funding, and inviting. Right? Leading, funding, and inviting. This is why we're always so adamant about getting you involved with something. We want to help you to put, and put you in a position where you can lead children, lead students, lead adults, lead groups of people, lead teams of people, give, serve, where you can actually use the gifts that you've been given. We want you to, to use those gifts to help guide and direct people. We want Sunday to be the best hour and a half of a person's week. And there is no way that we can do that without you. It's also why it's so important that those of us who are followers of Jesus actually become percentage givers. It's why every year I talk about the ideas of give and save and live. It's why every year I, I challenge you with a plan of developing some kind of a plan or a strategy to come up with a way to help support your church. The reason we've been able to do everything that we've done, especially in these past 18 months, is because a group of people, a nucleus of people, right, a remnant of people have in fact become tithers and percentage givers. Individuals and families who love their church and who are so thankful for their church. And see, for us to move forward, for us to, to move forward into the new opportunities, um, the exponential opportunities that God is putting in front of us as we move forward and as things continue to open up and, and get um, broader and broader and broader and we continue to reach more people, we're going to need more people to grow in their giving. And again, after all, why in the world would you not have a plan? Why in the world would you not have a strategy to support the organization that is so committed to the thing that has changed your life? The way that all happens 
is through funding. And it also happens through inviting. Now, the way that, to think about it is like this. We want you to invest in a relationship, and then we want you to invite to a group. Invest in a relationship, and then invite that person into a group. The vast, vast majority of you that are here, you are here because somebody invited you. You are here because somebody had the nerve to invite you to church. Somebody had the nerve to send you a link and to ask you to watch something with them. And you were like, no, 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 I, I, don't, I don't do that. No, I don't, I, don't, I don't do that. Right? And then you looked at it and you're like, oh. Or you're here and you're like, oh, oh, oh. And now you're here or you're here, right? And you're involved. You're connected. The reason you're here is because somebody invested in you and somebody invited you. And for us to continue to do what God has put us here to do, to accomplish the mission that he has given to us in the midst of all the battles that we face, to urge people to be reconciled to God. In order to do that, the way it's going to happen is through investing and inviting. It's through leading, funding, and inviting. And the promise, the promise that Jesus makes to us as his church is that there will be no thing and there will never be a battle, there will be no battle that will overcome the mission of Jesus and the mission of his church.